Motorist UK Magazine presents the Retro Racer Podcast. Join me, Mick Parler, as we delve into the history of racing from around the globe. Today, in episode 2, four motorcycle fanatics dream of turning their local park into a racetrack. a town that hosted Roman chariot races in 80 AD, the home of the Autodromo Enzo Edino Ferrari. This area of Italy was forged for racing. Part of the charm of the Imola circuit, something that's not apparent from TV, pictures or magazine reports, is the fact that it actually entwines through the town and public park. It amazes me still when I say that homes have an unbridled view of the circuit from the foot of their driveway or from the balcony. Naturally, being set in wooded parkland, there are many roads and tunnels that create a myriad of paths to walk, to view areas of a track that you couldn't possibly access at alternative venues. Driving directly under the track, approximately where an F1 car would line itself up for the Tamborello chicane, following the road to the right again, it'll take you through the centre of the circuit, a drive parallel to the track and with an unbroken view of the downhill section into Ravazza. It'll give you the chance to feel the uphill, downdale nature of the track. A very similar experience can be had around the toes of Hairpin too. Unparalleled views of the climb up to Puritel will also leave your mouth agape at the climb that faces cars in competition. The wonderfully passionate and knowledgeable, compared to their Monza counterparts to Fossey, who line the benches, are more concerned about lap times rather than any Milan-type fashionista types arrying up their attire. The passion of the fans who grace the grandstands and the history of the circuit make it so much more than some of the recent additions to the Formula 1 schedule. There is much more to Imola also than the last day of April and the first day of May in 1994. The of seeds for the Imola circuit began a couple of years after World War II. Four local motorcycle riders dreamed, as most of us who love racing do, about having somewhere close by to take their machines to the edge. They wistfully reasoned that the Parco Aqua Minerale, a lush and verdant parkland nestled on the southern edge of the town, would be a fertile place for the construction of a motorcycle racing circuit. The dream of the four men, Alfredo Campinoli, Graziano Golinelli, Ugo Montevecchi and Galtiero Vigi had been filtered through to a local racing enthusiast, Dr Francesco Costa. Support and financial input from Dr Costa set in motion the wheels that would lay the foundations for the new circuit. This almost caused the doctor's room, but thankfully he was able to gain further support from the Motor Club of Imola and managed to avoid bankruptcy. The Italian Olympic Committee was presented with a blueprint and with financial backing from the local community and Shell Oils, the go-ahead was given to build a circuit. In fact, the plan was so good that Giulio Onesti, President of the Olympic Committee, announced a plan to construct 12 new motorways and circuits across Italy with Imola being the prime example of what was to be constructed. After the purchasing of land from some private landowners, ground was broken in the circuit. Initially named Casalakis, was completed in late 1952. 
although that pronunciation might be wrong. Watched over by Enzo Ferrari along with Ernesti, the inaugural test session at the circuit featured the Ferrari trio of Alberto Ascari, Luigi Mosson and Giuseppe Farina. Mr Ferrari considered the new facility to be a miniature Nürburgring due to the contours. The layout was basically the same as this today, minus the chicanes. A fast and challenging circuit that would push the limits of the bravest of competitors. The first race meeting at the circuit was presented by the Motor Club of Imola on the 25th of April 1953. Five years after the initial dreams were considered, the fruition suitably began with a motorcycle meeting. A testament to the vision and tenacity of Campanoli, Colonelli, Montevici, Vigli and Dr Costa. It took another year for the track to host a meet and feature in cars. That first Shell-sponsored sports car race was won by Umberto Maggioli in a Ferrari 500 Mondial. But it was for two wheels that the circuit began to make its name. Non-championship and national championship races were commonplace through the 50s and 60s. It quickly gained a reputation as a place where only the very best could win. But its card had also been marked with its first fatality at a meeting in 1955. Riam was seen as a tough and gritty rider, the kind that would push a bike beyond its limits and put them into positions they should not have been in. Known for manhandling his bikes at extreme lean angles, the native Southern Rhodesian was a rising star of Grand Prix motorcycling. Having won three Ironman TT races and two Grand Prix, Aham had signed for the MV Augusta team for the 55 season. On Easter Monday, the 11th of April, he crashed at Ravats after clipping his footrest on the track surface. Out of control, Aham hit a metal post and was gravely injured. He passed away in an ambulance while being transferred to hospital. At the age of 27, Rian became the first person to lose their life at the Imola circuit. Formula One did not arrive at the track until 1963, a non-championship race being the first four-wheeled encounter there for seven years. It was a race notable for the absence of Ferrari and the ex-Ferrari-staffed ATS team. The new F1 car from Maranello was said to be not quite ready. All the visiting teams felt it was a sceptical move to avoid a potential embarrassing defeat in their own backyard. The Lotus Mark was the most populous on the 13-car grid. Other British names, BRM and Lola, helped to fill the gaps in the pit lane. Although the classic shape of the circuit map is very close to the layout today, a very different environment lined the trackside and spectator areas. In typical motorcycle fashion, straw bales lined the majority of the track with extras tied up against the trees. Safety was still not overly of concern in 1963. Spectator areas on the start-finish line and in the centre of Aqua Minerali were what would today be considered haphazard constructs. In fact, the Aqua Minerali spectator area was right up against the track, separated by nothing more than a low stone wall, and the entire grandstand area nowadays is part of the runoff. The parkland in the centre of the circuit was filled with plantation and vines and even the parish church. Sunday worshippers needed a special pass on race day to gain access to the house of God. Although the congregation always seemed to be lesser than the amount of passes handed out. And Dimmler, well, it was already becoming a religious affair in itself. The race was easily won at a canter by Jim Clark. The Scottish driver brought his Lotus 25 home ahead of Swiss driver Joseph at driving her Lotus. Imola continued to be host to a multitude of meetings for cars and bikes over the next four years. 
but the next major meeting was not run until 1969. A Mirage M3 run by John Wyatt Automotive and driven by Jackie X won the 500km event over the Ignazio Genuti-driven Alfa Romeo T33-3. The circuit was beginning to host prestige races on a regular basis and was becoming a well-known quantity in European racing. Sports car and touring of car events took place alongside a plethora of F2, Formula Ford and other junior-level single-seater races. The 1970 500km race was again a benefit for JWA this time, with Brian Redmond taking the spoils in a Porsche 917K, a three-lap victory once again over the Alpha T33-3. For the following season, an inter race headlined a huge bill of racing in a well-attended meeting. By now, the circuit had been improved and featured armco rails at what was considered dangerous points. Catch fencing was now around spectator areas, and there was also a larger contingent of marshals and officials. More didn't necessarily mean better, though. A Keystone Cup-style farce unravelled during the headline race, tragically witnessed by spectators in the main grandstand. On a wet track, the Alpha 33 of Austrian Klaus Reich spun while coming through the fast curve heading towards the pit street, aquaplaning and on standing water. The car spun at high speed into the pit wall. The impact flung the unfortunate driver out of the car, but the machine kept spinning until it reached the end of the pit lane where it erupted into flames. The quick reaction of officials saw them attend the burning car, with no knowledge that the driver was left unmoving on the pit street. It took some time, and the the call of the crowd for the officials to realise that his body was over a hundred yards away. This partially led to a sea change in the running of the venue. The circuit had been renamed the Autodromo Dino Ferrari in tribute to the late son of Enzo. This brought about greater visibility internationally. The change in stewardship came after a town referendum decided that the control should move from Imola and Sport Tourist Board to the Automobile Club of Bologna. This brought about new investment in the circuit infrastructure and improvements to the track for the sake of safety. The introduction of chicanes began in 1973, with the addition of Variante Alta to break up the run from the exit of Aqua Minerali and its up downhill run to Ravazza. A flurry of sports car junior formula racing continued to pace over the next few years, until tragic events at Monza set in motion a series of events that would truly elevate the track to the world stage. Italian Grand Prix at the historic Monza circuit had seen the start line accident which left popular Swedish driver Ronnie Peterson seriously injured. A series of leg fractures were operated upon over the course of the evening following the race. Unfortunately, Peterson fell into renal failure and died the following morning. The fallout from the tragedy saw Italian driver Riccardo Patrese banned because he was seen by some to be the driver who caused the crash. The actual cause of the accident was the race start releasing the field too early. The second half of the grid was still in motion lined up for the start when the green light came on. Subsequently, these cars were travelling at a higher speed than those ahead when most of the field arrived at the first chicane. This inevitably caused a bottleneck and the expected accident. The facilities and officiating at Monza were called into question. 
Although Monza was the granddaddy of Italian motor racing tracks, its upkeep was left wanton. Its dilapidated grandstands and pit lane were archaic even by the standard of the late 1970s. It was a thoroughly dissatisfying situation for one of Formula One's longest standing tracks. The solution was to hold Monza to ransom. Clean up or the Italian GP moves. The leverage used against Monza in that demand was similar. For 1979, the race remained at Monza. At the time, a rule existed whereby a circuit had to host a non-championship Grand Prix before being licensed for F1. <laughs> That's a rule I'd like to see reactivated. So, the race could not move southeast from Milan that season. Despite Monza dragging its monolithic clump and mass up to scratch, the non-championship Dino Ferrari Grand Prix was announced to be run at Imola one week after the 79 Italian Grand Prix. Therefore, Imola would be readily available to host the race in 1980 if Monza should fail in its attempt to satisfy the F1 hierarchy. The outward appearance of Monza was a bit tighter in 79, but the feelings that were complained about were still in existence. Fallen one week after Jordi Schechter had lifted his drivers' championship at Monza, the circus travelled to Imola. In stark contrast to the Grand Prix venue, the Imola circuit now looked pristine, modern and fresh compared to its northern cousin. The circuit was now encircled and sprightly arm cone catch fencing and it certainly gave the impression that a seismic change could be afoot at the highest echelon of Italian motorsport. The teams and organisers were more than satisfied by the huge paddock. Modern fully encompassing garages and a spacious, well-maintained pit lane. They considered a new benchmark in F1 standards. The press were also impressed. An all-new, well-designed media centre certainly made life easier and a happy journalist writing about the weekend wouldn't do the image of the circuit any harm. The race itself had a starting grid of only 16 cars, but an entertaining battle involving both Schechter and Gilles Villeneuve kept the local fans happy. A steady drive from Nicky Lauda and what would turn out to be his last race before his first retirement netted a win in his Brad Malfa. The event ran smoothly and was considered an all-round success. The circuit had been promised a Grand Prix in 1980 by Fiesta and Foca via an agreement reached between Enzo Ferrari, Bernie Eccleston and Luciano Conti. The proviso was already known that the Grand Prix would return to Monzo for 81. But plans were afoot to ensure that Italy would, in the future, have two races on the F1 The 1980 Italian Grand Prix at Imola was an official World Championship Formula 1 race. It was a long, long way from the initial dreams of Imola's creators. Four men who had dreamed of having somewhere to ride their motorcycles had created something that had now brought the world's number one championship to their small town. Beyond being a fantasy just a few years earlier, this little corner of Italy had usurped the mighty Monza and was now tasked with being the sole focus of the Tifosi for the 1980 Italian Grand Prix. This target was more than met. The town of Imola, it was filled with flags and banners that welcomed fans from the world over with a carnival atmosphere and a fantastic facility. The only thing left to complete the dream was a race worthy of memory, preferably with a Ferrari victory. Lamentably for the Tifosi, what had been a terrible season for the world champions was played out once again on home soil. 
Title holder Joey Schechter came to his 12th round of the season with a solitary 5th place achieved at Long Beach five and a half months earlier. In qualifying, Schechter was only able to manage 16th on the grid. Tired out by his motor racing adventure, Jody was on the verge of walking away from the sport. The flamboyant Villeneuve in the number two Ferrari, however, had wrangled his machine in eighth place, but even this was not enough to satisfy the voracious appetite of home support. The front of the grid was an old French affair. The Renault pairing of René Arnoux and Jean-Pierre Jabouille proved themselves fastest in qualifying. Carlos Reutemann put his Williams up into third, Bruno Giacomelli put his Alfa into fourth, and Nelson Piquet lined his Brabham up in fifth. At the start of the race, Reutemann bizarrely lined his third-place car directly between the front-row duo. It seemed he had decided that his grid placing didn't count for much. When the flag dropped, the Argentinian almost stayed put as the Renault cars dissipated in the distance. Piquet latched on the leaders, followed by Giacomelli and a fast start in Villeneuve. Over the first two laps, Arnoux immediately set his store out as the man who would likely dominate the race. His teammate was being harried and accosted by Piquet, meaning that his defensive driving was going to see him drop off the back of Arnoux's pace. On lap three, at the Aquamanorale chicane, Piquet's blue and white Brabham BT-49 shot past Chibouille's Renault as the Brazilian outbreaked his French counterpart. With such speed, it almost appeared as though the two cars were of vastly different formulas. Piquet now set his sight upon Arnoux in his Renault RE20. The Frenchman realised that his pursuant was digging his claws in and he was desperately trying to escape. Kissing curbs hard and kicking up dust, Renier was visibly dancing on the edge of the car's adhesion through the fourth lap. Pulling out of corners, his work was undone repeatedly under braking by Piquet. This was especially evident heading downhill into Ravazza. Hitting the brake pedal especially hard in the left-hand corner, the yellow and white machine was squirming off balance while Piquet caught the Renault. Heading through the short straight between the two Ravazza turns, Piquet had better acceleration was able to follow Arnoux through the second corner of the complex. Dive into the left on exit, Nelson had a better line for the chicane at the end of the lap. He passed Arnoux and headed off to lead the next 57 laps of the race to come home as a victor by 28 seconds. In a nutshell, that was the race over and done with, almost. A seminal moment occurred just a few seconds later when crowd fear of Jill Villeneuve had a huge crash coming out of the long sweeping Tamborello corner. With a puncture in the right rear tyre, the Quebec native spun 360 degrees and crashed almost head-on into the retaining wall with unabated speed. The left-hand side of the car was ripped off, and in a cloud of freshly ploughed soil, the remains of the car returned the track, facing oncoming traffic right in the centre of the braking zone for the Tosa hairpin. Villeneuve waved his hands to indicate that he was okay and walked away unhurt. This incident gave us what was the final corn name of the circuit as we know it today. Villeneuve joins Tamborello, Tosa, Peretella, Aquaminerali, Varianta Alta, Ravazza and Varianta Bassa. Now long-standing names, each with many tales to tell. In 1981, the F1 Circus returned to Imola. The Italian GP had returned to Monza. The title of San Marino was used, a clever borrowing of the title of the Republic barely 60 miles up the road. A convenient way to circumnavigate having more than one race in the country. Once again, Piquet took the honours for Brabham on route to his first driver's title. The joyous Italian fans were at least able to rejoice in Villeneuve taking pole position as new partner Didier Peroni challenging for victory. The pair were to feature heavily again in 1982.
The background for the 1982 race was coloured by a battle between the governing body FISA and the independent constructors FORA. As has constantly been the case in Formula 1, a disagreement over the sharing of money was the simple reason behind the rift. Petty tit-for-tat disqualifications, races being dinged on championship and strong words between the president of the sport, Jean-Marie Ballest, and anybody who cared to listen to him. It repeatedly took centre stage over the racing. To cut the quick of a longer story, which I'm sure will be told in a future episode, only 14 cars were on the starting grid for the race. At the front, two Renaults of Alain Prost and Arnoux, followed by two Ferraris of Villeneuve and Peroni. The rest of the grid was made up by also runs Tyrrell, Alpha, Acela, ATS and Tormann. The prospect of a boring, dull and probably uneventful race did nothing to quell the enthusiasm of the Ferrari faithful. With every space available, squeezed beyond capacity, a heady air of excitement filled the crowd. Knowing that the 1982 Ferrari 126C2 was a potential Titan winning car was one thing, but the absence of McLaren, Rabham and Williams, that increased the potential of the Marinello team actually winning the race. I'm sure the crowd would have been the same if only two Ferraris were starting. Prior to the race, a decision was made at Ferrari concerning what would happen if both Renault machines were to drop out of the race. The French mark had a poor of reliability record and in all likelihood wouldn't finish the race, so the decision was made that if the two Ferraris positioned 1-2, that the lead car would maintain position and take the race win. As predicted, the Renault pair didn't last the distance. Prost had a spectacular engine fire all the way from Tamborello to Tosa, and Arnoux fell to a turbo failure on lap 44. This left Villeneuve leading the race from Peroni. The Canadian settled, knowing his teammate would tail him for the final laps, while they managed to ensure that they wouldn't run dry and embarrass themselves at home. Didier, as you probably know, had other ideas. He challenged Villeneuve for the lead and overtook him. Shale thought that it was a bit of play to the fans and Julie responded by retaking the Frenchman. To and fro they passed and repassed each other until a couple of laps remained. Peroni allowed Villeneuve to pass him so that he could move, attack and re-pass Shale on the final lap on the run to Toza. That was the final move. Peroni led across the finish line. Villeneuve was left fuming that the agreement to hold place had been broken. Up on the podium Didier was feted by the crowd and celebrated his hard-fought victory. Shale, stone cold, stood motionless and distant. After the race, Villeneuve was incensed that Peroni broke his word, being a driver who constantly seemed to be on edge when racing. Shale had the reputation of being the straightest of men when it came to off-track and the aspect of motor racing. If you Peroni as a man with no conscience, Shale swore never to talk to Peroni again. The sour taste left over from the incident was carried to the next round at Zolder in Belgium. During qualifying on the Friday, Villeneuve was on track, attempting to better Peroni's time. Now, much has been written and said in the intervening years about the state of mind Gilles was in. Out of the car, he was obviously still incensed at what had transpired at Imola. In the car, nobody could attest to his mind. It is often said by drivers that once you're in the car, you don't have time for personal problems, you're too busy doing your job. Conjecture about mental position aside, what did happen was tragedy of the highest order. Villeneuve pushing his car came across the slow march of Jochenmaas and collided violently. He died later that evening. The driver that probably embodies the passion of F1 more than any was gone. The following year at Imola, Patrick Tombier won the San Marino Grand Prix. 
in a Ferrari carrying the number that Gilles had made famous and will forever be connected with. 27. Formula One had now accepted Imola as a full-time circuit on the calendar, but of course, other racing continued there. In 1983 and 84, the monstrous Group C cars of the World Sports Car Championship arrived. For the 1984 run of the Imola 1000km race, the dominant Rothmans Porsche team were expected to continue their prevailing grip on the leading class of sports car racing. Arrogantly, he entered only one car instead of the usual two, a single entry for Jackie Hicks and John Watson and they were out with clutch failure on the first lap. That left the advantage with the other works entry, Lancia. The pair of machines entered by the historic company spent the last three hours of the race parked behind the wall on the outside of the Tosa hairpin. This left the independent teams to tussle over a rare victory opportunity. A race-long battle ensued with a slew of evenly matched cars. The Brun Run Porsche 956 of Hans Joachim Stuck and Stefan Beloff took the spoils ahead of the 956 of Jonathan Palmer and Jan Lammers. Despite the feeling of the works 956, it was a pretty successful day for the Stuttgart concern, with 956s occupying the top of your positions. Other series that had incredibly successful races at Imola included Formula 3000. The Trofeo Elio de Angelis was commissioned to celebrate the life of the late F1 driver and was awarded to the victor of the international F3000 races held there. First two titles were taken by future F1 drivers Pierluigi Martini and Stefano Modena. One of the finest drives in F3000 at the circuit came in the 2000 Italian National Championship when British driver Warren Hughes dominated from pole with fastest lap to claim the victory. On the same day, in an Italian Formula Renault race, a young Brazilian charger named Felipe Massaro also won. Apart from the sports car and open wheel series that raced there, the National Super Turismo Touring Car Championship provided outstanding racing there during the 1990s. The sight of Alphas or Audis battling for a first lap lead in the Tosa was an exciting vision of motor racing. Of course, the advent of Super Touring regulations changed the sport forever. Names like Larini, Giovinardi, Piro, Chicotto and Ravaglia became well-known drivers across Europe after success in Italy and in particular Imola. Some seasons saw one driver find the groove and dominate a weekend. In 1992, it was Nicola Lorraine for Alpha, a runaway success. Being part of Alpha meant that Lorraine was part of the Ferrari family. And it eventually saw him move into the testing role at Maranello. He replaced an injured John Lacey and saw him achieve his only Grand Prix podium two years later during that black weekend that claimed Senna and Ratzenberger. Emanuele Pirro took the spoils for Audi in 1995, but the physical side of touring cars was also apparent. Italian Tamara Vidali saw her Alpha 155 shortened by a couple of feet when she was forced into the wall at Tosa by Amato Ferrari. The car was engulfed after the fuel tank ruptured, but a fire marshal intervention while other competitors were still at full racing speed was outstanding, if little haphazard and mental. Suppressing the fire in the car parked in the middle of the track may have been considered foolhardy by some, but the injuries she received could have been much, much worse were it not for that fast response.
The track would be renamed the Autodromo Enzo Edino Ferrari after Enzo's death in 1988, and it would eventually ring with the sound of top-level motorcycle racing. In tribute to the initial founding of the track, Grand Prix Bike Racing returned in 1996 with the 500cc World Championship. Of the four years racing there, Mick Doohan would win three of the races in what was his era of domination. In the lower classes, a young rising star named Valentino Rossi took the laurels in 125 and 250cc races in consecutive years. Following the exit of MotoGP, a round of the World Superbike Championship began to be held. It became a tradition to run towards the end of the season, and the Ducati team drew thousands of local fans to celebrate. 2004 brought one of the fondest memories, with Regis Laconi winning both races for the team. Of course, Imler is known for its F1 races above all else. The popularity of the event continued to grow. Elio Di Angelis proved a popular winner before his death in 85, mainly because he usurped a disqualified Alan Prost in the McLaren. Success in F1 was also achieved by Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna, Ricardo Patrese, Michael Schumacher, Damon Hill, etc. It was also noted that Imler could bite or cause embarrassment. Prost spinning off on the formation lap in 1991 and Stornis Ferrari in front of the Tifosi at Ravazza is possibly the biggest faux pas in the Frenchman's story career. Here we're not diving into the events of 1994. There's enough out there already. But Tamburo's warning signs were already there before that black weekend. Piquet in 87, Berger in 89, Patrese in 92 all had sizeable accidents. Nelson was so badly shaken after his accident that Professor Sid Watkins at that time, the F1 doctor, said that PK came to him claiming he was fit enough to drive, blissfully unaware that he was only wearing one shoe. In recent years, PK has admitted that he took a long time to recover from the accident and went through a lot of secret medical treatment to enable him to complete the season. Berger suffered burns in his accident and had to miss the race and the following Monaco Grand Prix. But Tracy was very lucky in his accident probably the highest speed of the three wrecks, but it did leave him severely shaken. Post-1994, changes were inevitably made at Tamburello and Villeneuve with the introduction of chicanes that are still in place today. Over the years, more redevelopment has taken place around the circuit, making a modern tribute to the chariot races of 2000 years ago. While F1 may have vacated after 2006, the track continued to host fantastic international racing as a must-go venue for motor racing fans the world over. One of the last great natural tracks to be added to F1, its place was taken by many of the monotonous identical Tilka tracks until the COVID-induced restructuring of the F1 calendar returned at the championship. In the last years of its first run, it was considered no longer fit for F1, but Fernando Alonso and Michael Schumacher gave the venue one last titanic battle in 2005. Admittedly, its return featured a similar state of affairs, but if you want passion and knowledge, the fans at Imola are some of the best in the world. While F1 has moved on into a new era of fandom, with Monza becoming a, another team piece of the jigsaw, the Covid race and the full proper return has seen real to force passion reignited. People, once again, appearing above walls and fences to get a glimpse of one of the greatest pieces of tarmac known to man, graced by their prancing horses. What is not the love about that?
The Retro Racer by Motor Racing UK podcast is written and produced by Mick Palmer for GTR Publishing. Copyright 2022.